and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So on today's episode, we are going to be covering a particular movie that is such a cult film. It's kind of known as one of these first kind of midnight movies. We're going to, you know, go to the soda shop and uh, run into like a, uh, <clears throat> like a guy selling us weed there, like kind of like a weird thirties gangster or something. And then we're also going to like jump out of a window as well. I don't know. We're going to do some shit, but today we're going to be covering, we got a little double feature here for you today. We are going to be covering the original movie of reefer badness from 1936 and then, uh, as a fun companion to it, we have Reefer Madness, the movie musical from 2005. And we'll get into all of that. But uh, for this episode today, I could not do it alone. Uh, so I decided to bring on a guest with me today. So this guest you just heard last week uh, on our episode about Pink Flamingos. And he's been on our episodes uh, for Carnival of Souls before. And he's also been heard on the Movies Made Gay podcast a couple different times. But welcome back to the show, Jackson Cooper. Hey, Jackson. How are you doing? Hello. I'm great how are you Doing great we're gonna just pretend like we didn't just talk to each other two days ago um <laughs> but it's fine it's fine it's, fine. Guys. it's all fine, fine. it's all fine <laughs> but yeah but jackson so you're on today because as we mentioned last week when i asked you to come on the pod you know you gave me ideas of like hey here's what i want to do carnival of souls mm-hmm. was one of them pink flamingos yep. was another one and this was also another one too and i knew i was going to get around to talking about this film and i wanted to definitely talk about it and because you brought it i was like well of course i'm going to bring you on mm-hmm. because fucking <laughs> why not but what i want to know jackson is i mean this movie is definitely a cult film but what is it about this movie made you want to come on here and talk about it and what is it about this film that is intriguing to you or makes you want to analyze and talk about it with uh with <laughs> yours truly myself yeah i love reefer madness madness the movie uh you are in washington no, I... <laughs> so i mean hey <laughs> yeah we are we are in i am i am in seattle so oh my gosh reefer madness where did that come from well, on the Pink Flamingos podcast, I talked about that book, Midnight Movies, by Jonathan Rosenbaum. And I remember Reefer Madness was in that book, but I didn't hear about it from that book. I heard about it from other... I think I heard about it from a book called the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film, which was for the longest time before the internet became this hub for people to share files of, of obscure movies and stuff. There was this book, which, which was all a collection, a literal encyclopedia of like the weirdest, most obscure movies. And there was a great entry on reefer madness. And I kept, I was fascinated by these movies that had this sort of Renaissance in the seventies and such. So reefer madness was one of them. It's a wonderful life. And wizard of Oz sort of had this, recurring um or this renaissance in the 60s and 70s with television so in a sense i was sort of obsessed with movies that got a second chance and found a new audience and reefer madness just kept showing up and i kept reading about how it was shown on college campuses and college kids would get very very stoned and watch it and it was in the public domain so i remember watching it and being like this movie is terrible and garbage and uh and so and then i discovered it was a movie musical starring alan cumming so i was a broadway gay and of course new alan cumming new Kristen bell anna gasteyer saturday night live 
So I I sort of came to both movies at the same time, and it was just great to see. I, it was great to see how the musical improved on the original, but I still have a soft spot for the original. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, like you were uh, saying on our Pink Flamingos episode, you uh, I think uh, it was either on the air or it was after we stopped recording. Mm-hmm. But you told me like, oh hey, with Reefer Madness, like go listen to the riff track um, of it, <laughs> which is on Tubi. Uh, and riff track is these like three friends, these guys who do like mystery science theater type commentary to these bad movies. Well, it's the it's the mystery science theater guys. So, so oh, it's, it's Kevin, them. Okay, Ke- gotcha. yeah. So it's um it's uh, um Mike Nelson, Kevin, and uh, yes. Yeah, so, so it's the original three guys who are just doing riffing all over again Mm -hmm. i love that anyway yeah yeah, so but i listened to them and it it was fun i i watched the movie uh, as well in preparation for this podcast but yeah i mean i (laughs) as you said it's not a good movie at all and i think we can get into we can get into how the movie actually came to be and how there was um it's a propaganda film you know it was the 30s y'all like it was a whole thing but anyway um but yeah and then the movie musical i was aware of because i uh even though yes i was a broadway uh gay like i liked that kind of stuff i am looking right over to my dvd collection and i see (laughs) my copy of rent that i got (laughs) from a blockbuster yeah a blockbuster speaking of bad movies yeah The movie is so listen bad rent rent like when you are 13 is so fucking edgy oh and it is just everything and then when you even get a little bit older you're just like wow you guys are whining about what like the fuck like anyway <laughs> love you jonathan larson you seem love like you the cool john guy. larson love you steven chabosky who uh yeah, directed like, it who wrote who wrote no, Percy and wallflower but well yes know, but hey. um I was going to say Chris Columbus directed that. Excuse me. Oh, Chris Columbus. That's right. But Stephen Chbosky wrote it. He wrote it. He wrote. I think he, I think he did. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen Perks of Being Being Wallflower, but I have read that book and I love that book. Yes. But um, yes, he did do that, but we, I don't stand Chris Columbus a ton. Eh, whatever but uh anyway but like yeah i wasn't aware of it at the time even though i probably could have seen it like you know Uh i was what 13 14 13 at that time but i came to it a little later because i listened to an episode of the horror queers who covered that movie because it's one of trace's like favorite movies apparently he really likes it and so he covered it on the podcast and that was cool uh also this ends at prom did an episode on that as well uh with bj colangelo and her wife uh really great um so i mean this is a movie that for people around our age like people probably watched it when they were in middle and high school really and so yeah and it was on tubi and i was like shit i'm gonna turn this on and watch it and i thoroughly enjoyed myself i thought it was so fun and campy and lovely uh-huh. and i will well i'm sure we'll talk about how it improved like you were talking about yeah um, yeah the original but as we normally do on the show we're gonna go through you know both of these productions will go through how these movies came to be and all that but before we do that though as we normally do on this show sometimes we give some history lessons here and there and because i have jackson here who is unofficially a uh film historian uh (laughs) to a point you know i don't think that's what you do for your job or anything but um i wish but yeah i know right (laughs) But you are somebody who has quite a vast knowledge of film and just film history and that kind of stuff. So I wanted to talk a little bit about just, yeah, how did Raver Madness come to be? And to talk about that, I think it's important to give context about how exactly did 
exploitation movies come mm-hmm. to be because mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes this film itself has was and then turned either was or turned into an exploitation movie but i'm going to throw it over to you jackson give us a mm-hmm. little bit of that sweet sweet knowledge footage <laughs> <laughs> yeah well exploitation movies they had a as as we like to i don't know we well when we say exploitation movies we mean movies that were made for a very low budget very guerrilla filmmaking like non-studio produced movies so very different from b movies uh because b movies were still technically a studio even though they were a smaller studio exploitation was sort of like amateur filmmaking in the you know no permits people who don't have any acting skills or background and and just basically people who, who like raised their own money and made a movie uh and put it out so everything was beginning uh, everything was grassroots so it was from the funding to the acting to the writing and to the distribution it was all kind of diy and there's a joke in film history actually in like film history textbooks that's like exploitation is as old as movie making because the first time somebody made a camera you know the second thing that they filmed was like their girlfriend taking her clothes off like it was just like exploitation movies have always been there but these movies are interesting because in the around the in the 30s this is pre-depression so you know film was still very new and sound was very new and there was a real fear with the which is what there was a real fear that children specifically were going to be drawn to movies because they were big, bright things with sound and they were, you know, with something completely, like completely new. So parents really, uh, you know, really sort of advocated for a change in movies and like this, this sort of clause of decency, which is how we get the production code in 1934. Um, So that basically wrote literally into a document like you know you can't have this this and this and so suddenly movies became a lot more cleaned up and nothing became as gritty that's why you hear the phrase pre-code um, because those movies had you know wonderful uh wonderfully scandalous things like um you know women being empowered you know not by a man and uh, positive racial relations. Yeah. Yes. I um, I think of this a little bit um, to kind of uh, butt in a little bit. Yeah. So with pre-code and stuff, this is where you get like, so you have like, when we think of this early type of filming a little bit, we think mm-hmm. of like, when you think of children and you think of stuff that was marketed to them, you have like cartoons, obviously. So those mm-hmm. were yeah. important. So, you know, Mickey Mouse, like Steamboat Willie is what he was known as before, mm-hmm. but you have these like animation things going on. You have things like the little rascals, which were little shorts that were shot right. and made. Right. Um, that kind of stuff. And uh, Shirley Temple, I think, might have been around this time or maybe a little after. But that was a big deal to have a little girl, you know, have as much power as she did. In, yeah, in right. Film, right. You know, um, but I think what you were talking about as well with fa- parents wanting to have a uh, a kind of handle on what was decent in the films and yeah. all that. 
I'm sure also comes from the fact that we have a little something called the Universal Monsters that came out at this time. <laughs> and I'm sure that people uh, who at this time were seeing yeah. things like Dracula, Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. and mm-hmm. The Old Dark House, which are, um, I've mm-hmm. at least seen Frankenstein and um, I saw the Mexican version of Dracula, which is actually really yeah. good. Yeah, this is great and, Spanish version. Um, yeah, and also The Old Dark House. But all of these movies, uh, not the Mexican uh, Dracula one, but Frankenstein and um, the, what is it? Oh my gosh. Um, the Old, the Dark, Old Dark, House. Dark House was made by a gay man who was literally out yeah. and everything. But yeah, I can only imagine that, especially with those kinds of movies, they're tame to what we think of now, I guess, when we think of horror especially. But I'm sure parents were horrified of being yeah. like, what the fuck is this? So yeah. I thought I would just interject with that, but no, 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 that's no, it's, it's a good point and you're right. But, the, uh, it, but their film was such a, it was, it was so like outside of the studios, anyone could do anything. And, uh, and you're right. There was just that it exploded onto the scene, just film period that it was very hard to wrangle in. So yeah, there was this free for all of content and um, some pretty scandalous stuff. Um, so the production code came along, and then there started to there started to be movies that were made as a way of um, sort of coming back into American family moral values. And so um, there were these movies that were commissioned by the government that were uh, pretty much propaganda um, and scare films. And Reefer Madness is one of them. There were also uh, there was a syphilis um, movie called Sex Madness out there. Um, and these actually, I mean, we'll get into it, but like Reefer Madness is not the first of these movies. There were quite a number of them. There's a great one called Tomorrow's Children, or, or uh, no, not Tomorrow's Children. Um, Damaged Lives, Damaged Lives. Yeah, Tomorrow's Children is not good. Damaged Lives is great, but that was made by Edgar Ulmer, who made The Black Cat um, with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, a great pre-code horror. So Hollywood and the government were sort of in cahoots about create about these scare films about sex, adultery, drugs, and it was it was again sort of a doubling down of morality and values. Reefer Madness, like I said, by no means is the first or the last, and the exploitation movies sort of pick a different theme and sort of there would be all these uh, other movies that came about them but the thing that distinguished these movies from studios is that these would literally be touring showmanship kind of events so they were made not to go not just to go into sort of the movie theaters to make money but they were made to be taken into towns in middle America and and the South, and especially to teach people about, um, you know, these lessons of don't do drugs and don't have sex with strangers. And, and this continued into the 1950s, the most famous, probably the most famous exploitation movie is a a forties movie called uh, mom and dad, which tying in with pink flamingos john waters had said like when that came out that was the only time that uh young boys could go and see a naked woman because they show a literal birthing scene (laughs) on screen in that 
but it be but that actually became the highest grossing movie of the 1940s like ever like period because it was being traveled around by different people is showcasing it and and sort of capitalizing on uh the scares of 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 that movie which was about you know having sex out of wedlock and syphilis and such but the they always came with a little gimmick and mom and dad actually had this thing where they had an actor similar to the guy at the beginning of reefer madness and who alan cumming plays in the movie musical they actually had a a lecturer who pretended to be a doctor and who would come out mid movie there's a literal break in the movie where he would come out and give a lecture on syphilis and such and so it just it was it, it just these movies capitalized on fear and it's uh it's fascinating like you think like oh of course this would never happen today and it's like well it's it it happens but it's more subtle you know there's for sure a lot of nationalist pro-military subtext to movies like transformers iron man you know there's a lot of post 9 11 fear of outsiders and something like cloverfield or the strangers so so yeah so i i think this is though exploitation i i love it i'm fascinated by it because it was just such a captured a moment in america where you the people literally made money off of other people's fears yeah totally i i love that thank you so much for our history lesson I, is that pretty much <laughs> the end of it i guess like unless you have more yeah, no, it's it. so <laughs> true because when i think of when i think of exploitation you know when it comes down to it like that is how kind of horror movies came uh-huh. to be yeah is that yes you had like the universal monsters um but then also having something like but yeah that's what also empowered like val luton to make like his films with like cat right, people right Matt, le diabolique you know uh yep. with that french filmmaker yep. like the thing from another world creature of the black lagoon all that stuff but so you you can kind of put that into there i also think like extreme like I don't know about like action, but like I'm trying to think what other kind of so horror is definitely an exploitation. Anything that was kind of porno chic was definitely exploitation. Yeah. So we're talking like Debbie Does Dallas, The Devil and Mrs. Johnson, I believe, um, Deep Throat, all of these. Um those, yeah, those were those were I mean, the thing about exploitation is you're you bring up a good point where it's like they almost they almost break through the commercial because they, they get success either underground or through commercial mm-hmm. yeah. distribution later pink flamingos great example that is sure. in a sense exploitation it's diy filmmaking yeah that broke through to be known uh, i think but, a huge but, one too sorry go ahead no 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 i was just gonna add like you know the porno chic like deep throat for sure i mean although some people will argue that's not a movie <laughs> but right, exactly but i think i think the thing about exploitation is the impact that it has on on the culture uh herschel gordon lewis all those um oh gosh what's his name russ meyer in the 60s there were a lot of exploitation movies that came about and it was in the 60s and 70s that it it became a little more of shot in the dark like everyone could make could make a movie and have it released and so it was hard to be like well this is exploitation but that's not exploitation unless it was something like black exploitation which um you really carved out its own niche on the market which is so fascinating to me because with black exploitation, I am fascinated by those kinds of films. Mm-hmm. Check out Girl That's Scary. They did a um, 
a black exploitation episode where they talk about different movies. So these mm-hmm. are films that could be in the horror genre. Like, you know, you have like the Blackula movies, you have mm-hmm. like Ganja and Hess to a point, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Other ones like that. But then you also have like, I just watched the Eddie Murphy movie, uh, Dolomite, Dolomite is my yeah. Uh-huh. And great. that movie is fucking great. It's so good. It's on Netflix. So please go watch it because you get to learn about Rudy Ray Moore and how he made this movie. Dolomite is on my list to watch on Tubi. So I will get around to it. I think that's so interesting. And, and black exploitation is kind of the most popular one. Like when people think of exploitation, mm-hmm. they think, oh, black exploitation, the harder they come, things like that. So, yeah. which is so fascinating to me because I was thinking of this while you were, while you were giving us your, your history lesson. <laughs> I, um, I was thinking that like, yes, like you have all this going on in the thirties, but then you also have like horribly racist things going on too, which is so fascinating. When you think of like black exploitation, this is a uh, response to the fact that, okay, we're out of the, we're past the civil rights movement a little bit and black folks are Mm -hmm. trying to get more of a, you know, independence. And so they're making their own films to play in cinemas that are in more black neighborhoods Mm -hmm. um, that are more specific to the community because, you know, they don't maybe want to watch the regular mainstream films because you can't always relate to that, especially when you are not a Caucasian, you know, heterosexual person, maybe, I don't know. But I think of this of like, when you think of a movie like for example one of the first movies that ever had sound the jazz singer and literally that has a everyone thinks like oh yeah it has the first bit of sound it also has a horribly racist blackface depiction in there and like it's just so fascinating to me that i'm just like wow that is what our culture was in the 30s you have this kind of a thing and then you have something like brief from Anis come out a couple years later right But then also, like, yeah, well, you have that kind of a thing. Some of the cartoons that came out at that time, not even just to black folks, but like to Asian folks because of World War II and all that. Right. Um, There's that. Well, there was a a really, I mean, it was all about fundamental Christian ideas. And so that was code word for white. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and as, you know, there was, so there was definitely for sure some underlying um yeah there was just this sort of need to preserve quote-unquote american ways and values and so there was a fear of the uh, other and that's prevalent too in the production code i mean you could argue that the production code well you can't argue it because it's true it was written by a fundamentalist christian uh pastor and so um so it was in a sense kind of doubling down on this idea that hollywood will always be conservative um but it's in exploitation movies especially as we get into the 60s and 70s uh, with black exploitation with russ meyer with herschel gordon lewis that we get the uh exploitation becoming social commentary um and the irony is is that they were in that time like decades after reefer madness and mom and dad and and sex madness and stuff like that they those filmmakers were at, the filmmakers in the 60s and 70s were actually using exploitation to say to fight and say things about current social issues whereas these movies were trying to make social issues out of something that didn't exist so it was it was in a sense this was actually used as propaganda and then it was reversed almost it had you know it was 
good intentions and good execution of what exploitation I think we all know it to be, which are these sort of you know DIY guerrilla style filmmaking that says something about society that mainstream doesn't say. So it's fascinating. It's just it's interesting how these movies have evolved over the years. Agreed. Yeah, and I I can really. Yeah, I can. I agree with all of that. It's just like so fascinating to look at this. And then also thinking of like, you know, um, you could tie this also into like, just because I'm a horror head, like Mm -hmm. a lot of the time with like, even with horror movies, like, you know, a lot of the time you can see what fears are in the american consciousness by the horror movies that are yeah oh absolutely Absolutely. in the 70s yeah in the 70s you have like the texas chainsaw massacre and Mm -hmm. you have like um halloween and like all these different ones and it's very much this but the 70s were also crazy like the gas shortage that happened Mm -hmm. that is depicted in the texas chainsaw massacre that was a real thing like there were just some gas stations that didn't have gas and they were Mm -hmm. just like we don't have anything you know and and it could just feel like there was a lot of cosmic shit going on where you're like the world's gonna end like this is ridiculous and crazy like richard nixon's in the white house lying to everybody like you know it's just like a whole thing y'all like this is Mm. ridiculous um (laughs) so you have that and i think that is reflected in the horror of the 70s um where it feels gritty it feels this kind of like whatever you want to call it which is why you have these movies then the 80s you have reaganomics and you have reagan in the white house and that was just also real pretty on the surface a lot of the time but Mm -hmm. underlying you have the horrid like war on drugs that didn't do fucking anything and you have the aids crisis where queer people are dying and people of color are dying and nobody seems to give a shit and so it's just like these movies that came out i think also some of them could be a reflection of just what was going on at that time really and then you know yeah. and then also with 2000s post 9 11 i mean the that this has been like analyzed to death but like you know the fact that we had all of these quote torture porn movies mm-hmm. yeah um, when we are also seeing a war from our television sets and yeah. you and me are old enough to know that yes we would just see like you know footage of people in iraq uh just on the news just like there like okay cool we weren't yeah. seeing i guess the dead bodies the news, but we were seeing that and it's like wow but the news describing you know waterboarding and the news describing what the detainees in Gu- guantanamo bay were yeah going through or how we were going to get information out yeah absolutely and so yeah yeah, it 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 always it always manifests yeah i agree with you it always manifests in horror Mm -hmm. whether whether it's obvious or not you know i mentioned earlier there were a lot of you know there are movies like cloverfield and um, these movies that were about attacks on america yeah but then also you got movies like the strangers and michael Mm -hmm. hanukkah's funny games remake with watts and you know that were about domestic terrorism and so this threat of your neighbor or just people randomly in the middle you know like that america has gone bad um so to speak and it's yeah it's it's fascinating i'm really interested you know i i haven't talked with any of my um <laughs> horror horror movie history friends about like what what the 2010s are about um because again we were sort of living through all those movies but 
you know, I think I think you can absolutely draw parallels between movies of each decade and what was going on in America. And Reefer, but Reefer Madness, going back to that, I think is is more directly a propaganda film. Um, not only because it was literally commissioned and made by the government, but because the intention of sh- of everything in it is to further an idea um which is stated in the first you know five minutes or so which is you know weed weed is bad and will if you fewer your kids smoke it you'll murder and uh <laughs> assault people <laughs> yeah and you'll just hit people with your cars and everything it's fine yeah which is um, insane insane so it's crazy yeah. uh but yeah so we had our fun history lesson about exploitation films and God, we could go on about that for a long time. Well, but- let me let me just say for listeners who are interested in learning more, there's a great book by Eric Schaffer, uh, which is called Bold, Daring, Shocking, True, uh, which is about the history of the golden age of exploitation. And then there's a great documentary called American Grindhouse, which um, is, I think, available for free on Tubi with commercials. But that, that also sh- sort of shows exploitation. But Eric Schaffer's book is probably the definitive book on it yeah yeah totally but yeah so we'll get into i guess what we're going to talk about in the, the episode itself talk about reefer madness and the movie musical so we'll start with the original movie um so again we'll go over this and then we'll move into mm-hmm. how this movie has a legacy of some sort and then how it became a musical exactly so mm-hmm. with um our normal figures we do so we have reefer madness it was released uh, in 1936, I don't have a date for it. it, was the original release, and then it was reissued in 1938 and 1939. Uh, this was directed by Louis J. Um, Gosnair, written by uh, Arthur Horrell, and then mm-hmm. produced by George um, Herleman and Dwayne Esper. And we're looking at a budget of about $100,000, which I don't know what the um, <laughs> today's uh, would be, but I'm sure it's more than 100000 in today's money. A box office, I don't have box office money from that time because I don't even know if they kept records like that. But I do have that it made about uh, $1.4 million with a new 1970s reissue that they did. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was, this movie did make some money probably on the midnight movie circuit at that time. Uh, We're looking at 90, uh, we're looking at 39% on tomato meter (laughs) and a 37% (laughs) on the audience score. (laughs) Not a 90. No, girl, we are not going to have that. No. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> 3.7 out of 10 on IMDb and a 2.1 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So that is our figures we have. And then wow. we have our, yeah, I know, right? And then we have our uh, cast of characters from 1936. So we have um, Dorothy Short as Mary Lane, Kenneth Craig as Bill Harper, uh, Lillian Miles as Blanche, Dave O'Brien as Ralph Wiley, Thelma White as Mae Coleman, and Carlton Young as Jack um, Perry, who I think those are like the kind of big main characters we have mm-hmm. that I believe are also in the movie musical, if I'm not mistaken. And you got some other random people. So like you have um you have like the doctor, um, who is that? Oh my gosh. Uh yeah, I think it's like Dr. Alfred Carroll, who I guess is the guy in the beginning of the movie, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yeah, that's yeah, him. That's him. That's yeah. him. Um, you know, and some uncredited people too, whatever. But yeah, as I stated before, those like six people that I just talked about, those are like our main characters we have that are in this little movie. 
some critical response quotes of this movie. I have about three of them. Uh, we have the film for staff who states, perhaps the mother of all bad movies. However, the didactic film, uh, unlike later stinkers, takes itself extremely seriously, seeing itself as an important instrument in the campaign against drugs. However, the film's ignorance is the audience's bliss. And then we have Sarah Bosla from the Arts uh, STL, who states before it became an ironic cult hit in the 1970s, Reefer Madness was a well-intentioned and unintentionally hilarious cautionary tale entitled Tell Your Children, which is just her telling us Mm -hmm. what the the movie is. (laughs) Um, And then Maddie Lucas from The Front Row, who states strictly an amateur hour production filled with laughably over-the-top acting and a silly sense of self-righteousness that makes it the perfect exploitation camp classic. Now, there we go, Maddie Lucas. Um, (laughs) There we go. Someone gets it. Thank God. There you go. All right cool um yeah so the information i have and feel free to you know butt in with whatever you need but uh (laughs) what i found was that uh in 1936 or 38 tell your children was um financed and it was made by a church group um it was intended to show the uh be shown to parents as a morality tale uh, attempting to uh, teach them about the dangers of cannabis abuse. Um, It was originally produced by, like I said, uh, George Herleman. Uh, However, after some time after the film was done, it was actually purchased by Dwayne Esper, who is an exploitation filmmaker Mm -hmm. um, who inserted some salacious shots. Um, And in 1938 or nine Esper himself started releasing this on the exploitation circuit where it was originally released at least in four, Four territories, each with their own title. So in the um, South, it was saying as uh, Tell Your Children. In west of Denver, Colorado, it was known as Doped Youth. Uh, in New England, it was known as Reefer Madness, which is what it's known as by everybody now. Um, and then in the Pennsylvania, West Virginia area, in my area, kind of, I guess, it'd be called The Burning Question. That also sounds like a STI thing, but okay. Whatever. <laughs> uh, but then the film was also screened all around the country, like you were saying, during the 40s, under these various titles. And Albert Dizel of Detroit eventually bought all the rights in 1951 to use it for roadshow screenings um, throughout the 1950s so that's like the big thing um and then you were talking about like such educational exploitation films uh became a thing under the production code um so homer juana from 1936 was one and then also elmer clifton's assassin of youth which i don't know if you know about that one but that's one as well seen it yeah Yes, and then the subject well, of marijuana. Cannabis. Marijuana, I think, was directed by Esper. I think it was mistaken. too. That's yeah. what it seems to say. Yeah, and then the subject of cannabis was particularly popular in the hysteria surrounding um, Anslinger's 1937's Marijuana Tax Act, which was a year after Reefer Madness had come yeah. out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, anything to add to to that of how the movie kind of got made? And got to no be? Esper. Well, except that Esper's an important name to know with exploitation. I think he was part of was the group the Forty Thieves or something like that. And it was it was Dwayne Esper and Kroger Bab and and oh my gosh Friedman David Friedman like all these all these sort of on the fly exploitation filmmakers who made these movies and then and then also were sort of the carnival barker of them in society so they would take them from town to town and uh and go around but you know esper i esper was i don't want to say the most 
uh, successful of all of them, but he made the most. I mean, he did make Sex Madness. He made Marijuana. He made a movie called Maniac in 1934, um, a movie called Narcotic, I think the year before or the year after one of the two. But so he was he was really kind of a capitalizing on the sensationalism of these movies and and just sort of kept churning these types of movies out for for audiences yeah Love he that. also yeah. if i if i remember correctly i don't know why this is standing out and listeners write in if i'm wrong but i think Please. he re-released uh freaks oh, out, nice. out in out into the world um yeah I, I if i'm not mistaken i think he's responsible for re-releasing it yeah, so the preservation and copyright status of this film. So the concept of aftermarket films in film distribution had not been developed yet. So they didn't have copyright, I guess, back then uh, or something. Anyway, especially for films that uh, existed outside the confines of the studio system, as we talked about uh, earlier and also mm-hmm. in our last episode about yeah. Flamingos, talking about the studio system and how it died and was therefore um, considered forbidden fruit. So for this reason, neither Esper nor um, Herleman uh, bothered to protect the copyright, which is probably why it fell into the public domain. Uh, So that it then had an improper copyright notice invalidating it. So for um, over 30 years later, in the spring of 1972, um, some guy by the name of Keith Strupp, he found a copy of this film in the Library of Congress. Um, Mm -hmm. He bought it for $297. (laughs) And as part of a fundraising campaign, um, this thing he founded, which was N O R M L normal. Um, he showed it around up and down colleges in California, asking for donations of a dollar and raised $16,000, which is the equivalent of about uh, $112,000 in today's money wow. uh, towards support for the California marijuana initiative, which sought to legalize marijuana uh, in the 1972 fall elections mm-hmm. over in California. And then Bob Shea, our girl from our girl, uh, Bob Shea, our girl Bob Shea, um, cinema, you- Bob Shea, Eventually heard about this underground hit and went to see it at the Bleecker uh, Street Cinema. He noticed the film carried the improper copyright uh, notice and realized it was in the public domain. Seeking materials for New Line's college circuit, he was able to obtain an original copy for the from the collector. And he began also distributing this nationally, quote, making a small fortune for New Line, which then also helped with him doing all of his other shit he was doing, like making, yeah. you know, helping to distribute think, flamingos and all that. Um, and then in 2004, Legend Films restored and colorized the print of the movie, uh, featuring unintentionally unrealistic um, color schemes that add to this campy humor. So the smoke from marijuana was made to appear green, blue, orange, and purple, <laughs> and each person's colored smoke representing their mood and their level of addiction. Um, and so some people didn't like that, apparently, but oh, well, it's fine. Uh, but yeah, and then this movie is considered, uh, as my show states, a cult classic. <laughs> It is one of the most popular examples of a midnight movie. Um, its fans enjoy the film for the same unintentionally campy production values that made it a hit in the 70s. And then we already went over the Rotten Tomatoes score and everything like that. Then uh, again, like the Los Angeles Times claimed that um, Reefer Madness was the first film that a generation embraced as its worst. And Leonard Maltin, who's a very known film critic, has stated that it's the granddaddy of all worst films. And Las <laughs> Vegas City Life has named it the worst ever runner up to play a nine from outer space which don't worry it's on the list to do but yeah so that's a little bit about that um 
And yeah, I mean, if you had to, uh, so Jackson, to kind of give a baseline of what our plot is, if you had to describe Reefer Madness to somebody who's never seen it before, how mm-hmm. would you describe this movie and how would you say what happens in it? Tell your children that smoking marijuana is bad. Um, <laughs> well, <go>. it's, it's, <laughs> how do I, where do I start? I mean, the the framing of the movie starts with this doctor, educator. uh, Some guy guy, from the street, I don't know. Some some guy from the street who is preaching to a parents association at a school about the dangers of marijuana and begins to take us on this, uh, forces us on this trip to uh, hear about a young boy named Jimmy Harper and uh, how he was just a fine nice wonderful all-american family boy who got so caught up in the wrong crowd that he began to smoke marijuana and it, it's it kind of goes into the den of <laughs> the the opium den you know of the i know the right? cast of characters that are in there who are just these degenerates who just have sex and you know dance to swing time and smoke reefer yeah exactly and i mean it's it's just wild they how much the movie spends on these you know this this alternative lifestyle that these reefer smokers yeah um, have that that it actually turns into being like that actually works fun um yeah it looks like a good time that looks like a great time but it basically is about Jimmy Harper, who becomes addicted to marijuana, and as a result, he turns into a murdering, uh, a murderous person and destroys his life uh, with with it, and takes everyone down with him, including the girl of his dreams. It's, yes. it's just it's just a wild. Uh, they it's hysterical to watch because the movie thinks that it is making this big deal. Yeah. but it's actually so comically bad like oh it misses, God, yeah. and, like the fact that you watch it and again and you say you know the government made this <laughs> you know that it was like who would believe this it is so outlandish so that's that's kind of a brief snapshot of it yeah yeah sure i'll, I'll take it it seems <laughs> fine yeah um yeah i mean like basically uh yeah you have uh may and jack are an unmarried couple i guess and they are living together and they sell marijuana and then yeah jimmy and mary lane who is his um like his best girl yeah best girl right and uh yeah it's them just like which we find them what's great is we find the the movie musical does a fantastic job Mm -hmm. uh with this but we find them first in reading romeo and juliet Mm-hmm. and uh and thinking like oh it's gonna have a happy ending and oh yeah they're so, so dumb. stupid they're so they're stupid. so, they're so, so stupid. stupid god yeah and then just like the whole idea of like yeah it's these things of like yeah because it gets all to that so like spoiler i guess obviously you came for this but like you know like jimmy runs over a guy and nobody knows about it except for him and the guy who's in the car with him and then like uh somehow mary lane gets shot and then uh the drug people like make it make jimmy think like he thought he did it or something may who's like the lady or whatever like she jumps out the window to her death after she's being like questioned or whatever the hell 
makes no sense and then of course like this movie just ends with like you know the next tragedy uh may be like your daughter or your son or yours or yours and like literally the guy playing the doctor is just like looking right at the camera and that's the literally end the looks dead straight down Into the barrel the of the camera and says or yours it's so good <laughs> as, as oh it fades God. to the credits yeah just so dumb like you know and then like even things of like so i'm looking at some of the fun little notes so like um and of course they use these as like oh these are like real things so like apparently it was inspired by the case this is also coming from IMDb, so like take it with a grain mm-hmm. of salt yeah but like apparently like uh this movie was also inspired by like the case of victor lakata who uh killed his father mother two brothers and a sister with an axe in tampa florida uh in uh 1933 allegedly while under the influence of marijuana he was declared unfit to stand trial for reasons of insanity subsequent um, psychiatric examination at the florida state mental hospital determined that he was schizophrenic with homicidal tendencies and so this was used to propagate um the passage of the federal marijuana act uh tax act in 1937 which outlawed which outlawed the legal sales of the demon weed um but again that sounds like a guy who was already like a schizophrenic and he in the 30s was not medicated and so he ended up killing people right but not because it was weed it was because he because we didn't understand mental health and mental illness in the 30s like well and also i was like i was like was that weed laced with something too because exactly kind of whoo yeah i know what's what's great in in this is if you if you do partake of um then you know that it slows you down and there are full scenes in this where they uh there's that great the an iconic scene shall we say that is now canon of mm-hmm. uh, of them play of uh, they're at the reefer den and a woman is playing a piano and this guy is high on his mind just going like faster faster and she's smoking weed and the weed supposedly is making the piece go faster but it, it's just like none of this yeah none of this is is true yeah it's just like so crazy and it's like i think that is what lends this movie to be so um ripe for mockery um and for it's this unintentional camp to it you know we can talk about we can get into all about camp and shit like that too but like you know just the idea of like i think this movie obviously was made by the government as like a stone serious like you know uh anti-drug thing right but Mm -hmm. i think now looking back on it and especially into like the 70s probably when it was being shown ironically Mm -hmm. um yeah it's because like this is so over the top that i mean how could it not be considered camp in a way um because yeah. it's divulging into what camp is which is this kind of abandon of um taste or right. an abandon of like it, you know things that are kind of just like uh what's the word um artificial like it, there's kind of celebrated because it's being it's so villainous it's so um cartoonishly villainous is what it is and that's just what i think is so fascinating about this movie it's not good at all it should be made fun of all the time but and you should not watch this stone cold fucking movie of this like please watch it with something (laughs) 
otherwise it's just boring yeah. like you're just like yeah what it's is this? Bore- it's it's a boring ass film if you watch it, it yeah. stone cold sober that's a great point yeah you yeah you and can't like yeah no yeah I, it, it is and yes have some kind of stimulant of some kind and even even right. riff tracks you know is is a great stimulant because they make fun of it as it goes on yeah uh, something if just if you just watch it straight and i've i've watched it straight before and it look it's only a 68 minute movie something crazy like that it feels like four fucking hours it feels like four long goddamn hours because again these were people who had never made a movie before and so there's just long continuity issues and the acting is bad the the dialogue is so stilted yeah it's it's amazing how it that it got made (laughs) but again by the government so yeah and i guess you could watch it as like a thing of like hey you want to see america make propaganda films here you go whatever because it's not i mean i haven't watched like the nazi propaganda films like i don't want to but um you know i but like also it's like yeah i mean we were kind of doing that with this because we were trying to demonize weed and it makes no sense why you okay it makes sense of why they did it at the time because again people older people were just scared of things in the 30s and they were afraid of we can also talk about um just very briefly but like the fact that in the 50s mm-hmm. teenagers became a thing like you yeah. have like movies like rebel without a cause or yeah. um like the maybe van doren you know films that she was in or any yep. of these things with like these are kind of like these teenage delinquent you know yeah juvenile delinquent type movies because pre that teenagers weren't seen as like a thing really like Mm -hmm. they i they were obviously a thing because obviously you have to grow up and be a teenager but like it's just that you know yeah it's just seen as like this you're thinking like okay children everything that's not an adult and then children i guess and then older people elderly people i guess but like you know teenagers kind of got their own little thing you know when they have these juvenile delinquent movies come out mm-hmm. yeah. and you're showing um this kind of rebellious side especially during a time that in the 50s was so um kind of cookie cutter and everything um yeah. we're not going to go too deep into it because it's not about this movie but uh <laughs> mental hygiene films that oh you can yes to oh and talk God. about all that um yeah. We don't have to mention, if you want to give a brief introduction of what that would be, uh, it ties a little bit into the kind of films that we're talking about. Um, but yeah, I mean, mental hygiene films are an interesting kind of part of that. Yeah. Um, go go listen to This Ends at Prom and their episode on Pleasantville, because they <laughs> talk about that as well. And Pleasantville is actually a great example of that. It is a great example, yeah. It is. But Jackson, do you want to give, like, before we move into the movie musical and talking a little bit about how that came to be, just talk a little bit about what the mental hygiene film is? Because it does kind of tie a little bit into this kind of filmmaking with, like, scare filmmaking. Um, it's It's in the same neighborhood as that yeah i uh, well i it's funny uh, mental hygiene i oh geez where do oh god where do we start with this i think the best way to explain it i guess if we wanted yeah. to just to kind of uh-huh. basic it on it would be that a mental hygiene film is kind of like a film where uh they wheel the projector in 
to class one day during health class or during your like i don't know home economics class or something who knows and um and they show this film that is made as like uh this is how life should be yeah, and this is yeah, how you should be right. a standing citizen right these were <laughs> these were the posture pals these were the don't cheat on the exam yeah these were instructional films that were made uh you're right specifically for classroom okay yes okay now it's all coming back that to me. kind yeah. of thing yeah so um and you know Dwayne Esper actually back to Dwayne Esper he made a Oh my God. It's, it's a shocking move. It's a shocking one, but it was made specifically. It has a little bit of a tongue in cheek tone to it. Um, but it's, uh, he made one for women called how to undress in front of your husband. So yeah, they were basically these, uh, doubling down on morality, but how to be like a good American citizen and all American person. And in a sense, it was like devoid of any thing that could be sexual or political or, uh you know substance related of any kind but they it, it it was to create you know good upstanding american citizens um and you're right it's from that that we get scare films in the especially the 50s as you mentioned of of juvenile delinquency and such um which kind of emerged out of these scare films of the 30s because they were aimed at teenagers and stuff like that and they said well what's what's worse than drugs and <laughs> unprotected sex it was like well rebellious teens against the system and such so i think also there was an undercurrent thinking about just not just film history but history period there was kind of an undercurrent of it around world war ii and uh and after world war ii there was sort of a a nationalist it it, it sort of came from the isolationist perspective that we had of you know we didn't want any other thoughts that were not american and so if a teenager wanted to say fuck the system then they were <laughs> a communist or you know a threat a threat to american society and so yeah these mental hygiene movies were just about you know keeping keeping uh keeping up with appearances and yeah being the best you know brother son right this is how you do your makeup for yeah. you know a lady this is how exactly. you groom yourself as a young man yeah here's exactly. how you go into a job after high school and how you don't be like a dick um <laughs> and like but then you also have like the weird ones of like you see this guy he is a homosexual and he preys on young yeah. men yeah uh, those there's are real a, like the, yeah there's there's one if you just uh if you listeners if you go to youtube and type in boys beware there's a a great educational short film which i thought was fake for the longest time by the way but no it's very much real about homosexuals uh it's quite shocking oh, quite shocking Jesus but again it, a different time it's not not defending them but you know it, it was it was a different time it was a different time. it is and also when you think about it like you know so like America after the war of World War II, we actually had it all right because like we didn't get decimated like fucking Germany did. Okay. So like we didn't have to build our shit back up from the ground up because we got bombed. Yeah. Okay? Right. So yes, we got bombed at Pearl Harbor, but like that's a little different because our anyway. So then you have all of these. And then what's crazy too when you think about it? So like not to 
you get into a tangent, but like, you know, you know what you came for, but like <laughs> you have women entering the workforce uh, at this time when the men were all away, mm-hmm. actually experiencing a level of independence yeah. and being able to work and shit like that. Um, and then also probably being able to discover maybe the little bit of like a uh, little bit of lady Lake, if you will, you like, you know, realizing that maybe they didn't love their husbands as much as they wanted. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and then men come back and it all goes back to, you know, normal. Um, but when you think about it, this is exactly why in something like the fifties of a decade, uh, it was all about appearances. It's all about like, everything has to be the same and look the same and all of this, because right. you have these people who came back from a war who we did not understand mental health. We did not understand uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. That is exactly yeah. why you had people who were um, turning to alcohol and who were um, beating their wives and all of this because they didn't know how to handle the horrible shit that they probably saw when they were at war. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, it all ties back. Like, it's just like, that is exactly what the fifties was the way it was because it's all about keeping up appearances. Mm-hmm. Mental hygiene films are really a big part of the fifties, especially as in Pleasantville, it's kind of talking about that. It's kind right. of like very much that, but like it is very much like this. Everything on the surface is like supposed to be the same. And it's supposed to be this, but under the undercurrent, you have this like, yeah, you have like these teenage delinquencies, juvenile delinquents. Um, you have the start of rock and roll, which was started by black people and then accosted by white people. Yeah. Um, you know, and all of this stuff, you got all this, you know, brewing underneath, you know, divorce, people realizing that they didn't, they hated their, their mm-hmm. husbands. Um, yeah. whatever and then in the 60s you had a little bit of that and then it kind of blew up because then people were like fuck this Mm -hmm. and then it kind of comes all out but it was just it's insidious for the 50s in a weird way right because it's uh, because it's not outward in the 60s i think it became more outward Um, yeah it built it built to a cathartic explosion and i think Mm -hmm. too i think too in the 50s there was still um there was still this need to i mean there was the sort of generational cultural thing of just you know keeping it all inside yes but also it was still a it was still a, a cause and effect from a foreign distanced thing and yeah. it wasn't until basically like jfk got assassinated that like the fabric of america began to be like oh shit it's one of us one of us could kill the president one of us could you know do this or at least it didn't ground into american you know the american social fabric as much until then yeah um but i but i also say with these films i don't i don't think they actually helped the cause (laughs) like reefer madness mom and dad like i actually think they made it worse and um i mean their propaganda propaganda can be good but i think most all propaganda sort of perpetuates the the negative not the positive and so you know that there was so much output for these uh, of these movies i don't think it actually helped america um or americans i think it made them more scared i think it made them more scared of each other of 
Um, and that probably was the purpose because these places, you know, the government wanted to be the sole ones in control of futures and, and stuff like that. So totally. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, so we're going to get off of our history lesson because this is just, <laughs> but there is a lot to this because there is a lot to unpack with three for madness because yeah. this these were your tax dollars at work yes so exactly. it's like yeah you know there's a lot to that and so being able to talk about that kind of stuff is is good uh but we're gonna get into a way more fun uh thing which is the movie musical from 2005 of this movie this is directed by andy finkman who also i believe directed the actual stage musical um uh, it was written by kevin murphy and uh dan studney and it was mm-hmm. produced by also andy fickman uh well, all these guys, they pretty much produced Kevin it. Murphy, Kevin Murphy, by the way, I think Riff Tracks and Mystery Science Theater, if that's the same Kevin Murphy. I wouldn't be surprised. That be would, surprised. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, we're looking at a $25 million budget, which for a uh, TV movie is kind of big. We could talk about Cherry Falls at some point, because I want to do an episode on that too, but that was $15 million and it turned into a TV oh, right. movie. Right, yeah. Um, anyway, there's no box office information because this is a TV movie on Showtime, um, but we're looking at a 75% on the tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes and an 87% audience score, and then a 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb and a 3.5 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So that's our figures for the movie musical. And then we got our cast of characters, so I'll talk about just the main principal cast. We have Alan Cumming as many different people. He's the lecturer <laughs> in the beginning, but he's also the goat man in one of the dance sequences. He's FDR and he's other minor characters. Uh, Christian Campbell, the brother of Nev Campbell, yeah. uh, is Jimmy Harper. Kristen Bell, uh, right around the same time as Veronica Mars, is Mary Lane. And Stephen Weber is Jack Stone and um, George Washington in the tell them the truth song Anna Gasteyer off the heels of being on SNL uh this is after she was in Mean Girls all this she is Mae Coleman uh John Kassir my hometown boy from Baltimore and also the Crypt Keeper himself um he plays uh Ralph Wiley and he's also Uncle Sam and tell them the truth mm-hmm. and then Amy Spanger the uh former wife of Michael C. Hall um Dexter himself and David Fisher himself uh, is uh, Sandy Sally uh, Debanis, who I don't think is in the original movie at all. No, I don't think so. Robert Torty as Jesus in one of the sing uh, dance numbers, and then Nev Campbell plays the uh, Miss Poppy, who I don't think had an actual character in no, the original movie. No, it was a guy. original, yeah. Yeah, it was great uh, to see her pop up on screen. I I loved it. I completely forgot that she has a great cameo in it, and I was like, oh "She my does." God, it's great. It's it's wonderful, and she's only in there for like five minutes. It's funny. oh yeah, it's great. Um, but you also have like Chris, uh, Chris, uh, Christine Lakin. Um, she's Joan of Arc. Uh, is fun. Uh, Ken Kersinger, the Freddy versus Jason. Jason. Um, he's like a Secret Service agent, and then also uh, Michael uh, Gorgian, who, if you've seen SLC Punk, he is Heroin Bob. Um, he and he was on Party of Five and stuff like that. Um, he's also in this little. Um, he is in the um, the lecture. He's in the assembly that they're yeah, all in. So in yeah, the beginning, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I didn't find really many. There was only eight uh, quotes from critics. Uh, the one bad one I had was from Scott Weinberg from E Film Critic, who said maybe a few bong hits would make this thing funnier. Okay, but then uh, of course I got to give my my props to Trace Thurman from the Horror Queers podcast, who states without a doubt one of the funniest and wittiest movie musical parodies ever made. Which I will give him that. Anyway, so. Uh, do you have anything to add about uh, the movie musical before I go into any production history or anything like that? Not the not the not the making of it. No, I I, no. I just I remember that this and maybe you'll get to this in the production history that maybe. it was and I don't even think it was off Broadway, but it originated in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the musical had its premiere in L.A. It did. and was fairly successful. And I think Campbell was in it. Not Nev Campbell. Yes. Yeah, I think he was the original Jimmy. He originated uh, it, yeah. Yeah, and so I love a parody musical. We take them for granted nowadays yeah. because there's so many. Um, there's the Titanic, which mm-hmm. is now off-Broadway, and um, you know there was the Seinfeld musical parody out now. There's Stranger Things, the Stranger Things mm-hmm. parody. So, uh, But this was er- an early adopter of a parody musical. So, I, I, yeah, I really like this. But it also, it doesn't just parody the movie it it kind of opens up the movie in a new way and it sort of leans into the absurdity of it um by making it you know there's there's an uh there's the orgy scene there's a scene zombies yeah the zombies there's a scene where jesus sings you know there's a a i don't remember brownies being in the original but there's a Mm -hmm. whole scene about brownies (laughs) and so yeah no there isn't great it's great yeah no and also fun little fact about the dvd of the movie uh is that it actually uh came uh in a brownie scented like case or something so that's kind of fun <laughs> i i think also because at this point people were aware that you could make uh pot brownies so that's probably why that was in there which i think is really yeah. a fun thing to kind of put a twist on yeah uh but yeah, so in 1998, uh, we have writing partners Kevin Murphy and uh, Dan Studney, who had written, um, who had met while studying at Drew uh, University in New Jersey. Um, they were driving from Oakland to Los Angeles. So maybe it's not the same Kevin Murphy. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe it is. You could do the research and development if you want. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, they were driving from Oakland to Los Angeles and they began listening to Frank Zappa's Joe's Garage when they uh, began discussing how one might stage this piece. So he was picturing in his head, Studney recalls Frank Zappa's concept of a musical and then it hit him. Uh, he turned to Kevin and he said, what about doing Reefer Madness as a musical? Uh, by this time, uh, by that time, the duo had reached LA uh they had already written the first song and so upon completion of the script that they wrote uh they uh approached Andy Finkman who uh, had won awards for being a director and he accepted the project with great enthusiasm he said I was a big fan of the original movie it always made me laugh um then I listened to Dan and Kevin warbling away on the demo track which didn't make me laugh it made me cry but the movie was but the music was good and I thought God if real singers were singing this and then when I read the script I fell in love with it so he was like enamored with it yeah 
And so the play opened in a small equity theater, um, a waiver theater in LA, uh, what the producers thought would be a two week run. Um, it played to pack houses for over a year and a half, captivating audiences and critics alike. And it won 20 theater awards and broke records. And many people came back to, uh, see it dressed in costumes and shouting at the lines. Do we see a, a connection here? Um, and so kind of worked out that way. Um, there were a couple, uh, additions, um, to the show. Show, uh, major changes were made um, near the end of the LA run. So Lonely Pew was added to the first act. They there were a couple different things like this coming in. Oh, apparently the orgy scene was uh, revamped with new choreography by Paula Abdul. So there were like little changes here and there. Uh, but yeah, they moved that uh, to off Broadway, and then uh, Murphy and Studney made some changes to the text as well. So, yeah, um, we're looking at Christian Campbell. He originated Jimmy Harper and Robert Torty, who had also been on Broadway. He was also Jack Stone. And he was Jesus in the original movie or sorry, the original um, stage show. And John Kassir also originated the Ralph role as well. Um, so they all came to the to the movie. Nobody else did, though, I don't think. <laughs> but then we have those same people. But then also when they went to New York, uh, that is when they added Kristen Bell. And she did originate that. She didn't originate the role of Mary, but she was like the second person. She was doing it in New York. Right. And then she came to the movie because she just accidentally got a show. And that's why she got it, probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, because when you get like, I don't know. Yeah, when you get... Uh, because Kristen Bell was like an unknown at that time. And by that point, oops, like you have a whole show that people like on yeah. UPN. Okay. We're going to put you in this movie now. <laughs> uh, do you want to do this since you're already doing it? Uh, <laughs> but yeah. So anyway, yeah, but that's pretty much how it came to be. I mean, really that's what I found at least is yeah. It seems like this m- musical took on a life of its own and it really yeah. mimicked the, the normal of uh, a midnight movie, which makes apt sense because this was a midnight movie at one point. So, you know, but, but yeah, I, I just think like, I think if anything, so like, I'm not going to go over the plot again. Cause literally the plot is pretty much this movie. Are there any blaring uh, differences? I know there are, but are there any blaring differences uh, from the original text to the movie uh, that we want to kind of highlight a little bit, except for just the zombies in the orgy? <laughs> well, I think the biggest is that is that they they mainly go they go into depth about they I mean they really make it a point to make fun of how like what the weed like what the weed is doing to Jimmy. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. So, you know, they they kind of focus a lot on his moral, you know, the eth- like like the good boy turned bad kind of storyline um which i think the movie the original movie does not go too in depth into you know it's almost like he smokes weed and then becomes a bad person and in here in the musical because i guess they have more time um they really sort of go into him um sort of wrestling that but then also once he becomes the bad kid like how just really bad he is um but outlandishly you know so he so it's it's uh, it's comical how big he gets you know in terms of uh just just how yeah it's just absurd they just they and they have more opportunities to focus on 
different characters. And so some characters who don't even have a name in the original suddenly are, you know, side characters or sidekicks and stuff like that. So it really opens up the story in a new way. Um, that's great. It, it just feels like yeah. a fun playground ride. Yeah. Yeah, I, I enjoy um, the addition of Sally because I think Amy Spanger yeah. did such a good job. But also yeah. the fact that they added that she's a mother and that she has a baby. Right, with a baby, yeah. <laughs> and they the they set the baby's bassinet on fire, but the baby's okay. Like, it's a whole thing because she's high and she's like... I also love that they make her so clumsy. Oh my God, yes, that shit yeah. rocked my she world. It was keeps, so funny. She just keeps uh, running into stuff. Yeah. <laughs> running into stuff. She's falling down the stairs. It's so funny. And then she gets her head cut off. It's a whole thing. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, there's that. I mean, for sure. And then also, like you were saying, I mean, just like some of the irreverent comedy that's in it too. Um, yeah. You know, just like, um, which again was of the time, I guess. And I, Honestly, you know what I will say though? I don't think there's anything too horrible in this. It was 2005, everybody. I mean, no, I, no, and it's a made for TV movie. So yeah. within reason, they still had to, um, yeah, they still had to do stuff. The, um, the sauciest they got was that I, uh, what is this? How do you say this? I don't speak Mexican. Like, you know, okay. Like, that's about as saucy as they could get. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, yeah, I think I think it's a it's a really great musical adaptation because mm -hmm. and what's great about well what's great about Kevin Murphy I just did a quick search no it is not the mystery it's not him Kevin Murphy I wish it was but the Kevin Murphy who did write it did do um, the Heather's musical love so, that great which is also a great adaptation of the movie to the Broadway stage, but he, he just, you know, it's a good, it's a good m movie musical because it's just fun. And I think yeah. that's where, you know, the, the original movie is not fun. It's oh, no, not at all. Uh, as we said, it's turgid in parts, you know, where it's just like, Oh my God, like we got to, so most of it is a slog. So the fact that they combined, you know, the absurdity of the original with, Honestly, kind of movie movies from the fifties, you know, where it was oh, just yeah. open it up. There's just more supporting cast, and um, yeah, I think it works. It works very well, and it's a musical comedy. So yes, it's, it's irreverent. It's raunchy. It's a joke after joke after joke. There's very little self awareness. Yeah, it's the, great. great. The characters are stupid. Like oh very my god, Mary Lane and they, Jimmy they are stupid. Yeah. Uh, they don't have any, you know, semblance of logic ever. No, nope. <laughs> which is making fun of the idea of like. I think it's making fun of just like in the 30s with like people on film. It's like, did nobody have a brain at this time? Like, what is yeah. going on? Yeah, like, huh? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's crazy. It's great. Do you have um? Do you have a particular favorite song from this musical? Oh, two. I love listening to Jesus, Jimmy. I think that's <laughs> yes. just, well, it just it just comes out of nowhere and it's hysterical. But I also I love um Mary Lane, Mary Jane. Oh, I uh, love it too. Phenomenal. And I remember like just when when I watched it for the first time and 
like everyone in the movie is singing it. His I love that too. I was gonna bring that up. I was like, oh my god, like Nev Campbell's like driving the car. It's oh, it's so fucking funny. And the hobo sings that the dead oh hobo god. gets up and sings it. Oh. Um, Anna Gasteyer and and Stephen Weber are singing it. It's, it's so, so good. good. It's so funny. I love that one. And um, Romeo and Juliet. Re- Romeo and Juliet made me laugh out loud. It's the good. first time I saw it because not just the staging, but like the lyrics were just so good. brilliant. I, I must say, I love Mary Jane, Mary Lane because yeah. it's ridiculous. Um, I do love Romeo and Juliet. That's a good one, too. I even like the stuff from Anagastire. Oh, yeah. Because also, um, shout out to Justin Nordell. Um, he's on Letterboxd. He's like a movie guy or whatever, movie gay. He's in Philadelphia, I think. Anyway, I follow him in Letterboxd, and he says, like, every time Anna Gassire just screams, rapes me outside of the window, which, again, horrid, but, like, it never fails to make him choke on his drink. Oh, it's great. It's great. It's so, it's so stupid and funny. Like, yeah. it is ridiculous. Um, oh, it's so good. Um, and even Murder. I like Murder because, like, that's it's literally good. the zombie song. Uh-huh. So, like, yeah. it is... Because when the zombies come up, man, I'm literally like, what the fuck is this movie? But I am all in. Yeah. (laughs) I am all in. Uh, But yeah, so. Oh, God. Anyway, but yeah, so. Yeah, I think that's really all I can think. And then uh, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a nice little amalgamation of both of these films and everything. I'm trying to think how to wrap this up, if anything. Um don't watch the first movie it's not great if you're gonna watch it watch it with a commentary or something because it's boring <laughs> and absolutely go watch this uh this movie musical because it's so fucking funny and so fun yeah, it's really good it's really Please. good um i might even go who knows i might even go buy that brownie scented uh D- blu-ray or dvd or whatever i might just do that <laughs> um i probably should well. add it to there i might as well right it's great yeah uh, it's it's great i i think it's streaming um it's streaming on mm-hmm. Tubi. the it is uh, and voodoo uh, and all that and voodoo and um the original is in the public domain but you can find both riff tracks versions there's a mm-hmm. riff tracks three riffer version and um of the colorized version and then also the riff tracks live which you can find also on Tubi, both of those. Yeah. Yes. And also it's on Showtime for some reason. I don't know why, but <laughs> it, it is. If you want to go watch it there, if you have a Showtime subscription, if you're going to watch Yellow Jackets like I do. Yes. Um, anyway, but uh, I think that's a good little wrap up to this yep. episode. I'm so happy to have had this conversation with you, Jackson. So because, great. Thank you. Because I think we got to go on a fun tangent about just like film history, yep. but it kind of makes sense though with what we're talking about. Uh, and I'm so happy to to have you back and everything. Um, but please uh, tell the people where they can find you on social media if you want them to you know stalk you or whatever. Yeah, stalk me. Uh, Instagram at jackson.cooper.arts. Uh, website jcooperarts.com yeah so those you can just find me on those uh i yeah. don't update my letterbox as much as i should but i'll um, make you i'm yeah i'm on letterbox at let's movie um and yeah 
it's yeah that's where you can find me thanks for having uh, me again two times in a row i know right trying to get the people you know trying to give the people what they want <laughs> not that i not that i've had requests for you but i like you so that's why i want to have you on um <laughs> But thank you so much, and uh, thank you so much, and uh, have a great rest of your evening. Yeah, okay? thanks. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. If you'd like to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you'd just like to say hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow the show on Instagram at cultcinemacircle, and on Twitter at cultcinemacircle. I tend to announce the movies that I'm going to be covering, and just interact with people on there if they want. You can also follow me on Letterboxd at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On that platform, I tend to log the movies that I watch, I write little stupid reviews about them, and just general foolishness over there. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty much on all of them. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review about the show uh, so we can grow the audience and then just spread the love all around. Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, where I'll be covering 1986's Night of the Creeps. In 1959, an alien experiment crashes to Earth and infects a fraternity member. They freeze the body, but in the modern day, two geeks pledging a fraternity accidentally thaw the corpse, which proceeds to infect the campus with parasites that transform their hosts into killer zombies. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, and remember, Mary Jane, oh Mary Jane, you conquered me like Charlemagne. Take care. Bye.